0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
2: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find
3: what you came for here
2: and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Hello. That's Miles Davis with a little from his classic album, Sketches of Spain. Our old friend Mike suggested we play this music to introduce
1: today's featured author and featured novel. Ernest Hemingway's A Sun Also Rises. We'll travel from Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb just outside Chicago, the hometown of architect Frank Lloyd Wright. We'll start at the advent of a new century, the 20th, where a young boy named Ernest will grow into the man who the world came to know as Papa. From there, we'll go to Paris and its cafes of the 1920s, and then to Spain, where our hero will fall in love with a woman, and with a country, and with a people, with all the traditions that entails, including an ancient but renewable fiesta, and the timeless story of love and death in the bullfighting ring. Hemingway today on the history of literature.
0: Okay, here we go. So much fun today. It's Hemingway Day. Let's get right to it. Mike's going to be here in a moment,
1: but let's start with a couple of nice emails that came in. Subject, your podcast helped me write a piece for the New Yorker. Hi, Jack. Hope you're well. As you know, I've been a big fan of the history of literature for a while. In fact, one of your old episodes about couples from literature inspired me to write a humor piece for the New Yorker called Literature's Great Couples on Tinder. Then <laughs> he includes a link, thought you might get a kick out of it, I haven't missed a single HOL episode since. Keep up the great work. Best, Irving. All right, Irving. Congratulations on the New Yorker piece. And we are glad that we could help out. I thought our listeners might enjoy taking a look at that as well. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. And by the way, before I forget, some of you may have noticed we joined a network a few months ago, the Recorded History Podcast Network. There are some Great fellow podcasters out there doing great work and telling great stories. This week, I want to give a special shout out to Historical Blindness, a podcast run by Nathaniel Lloyd. This podcast brings up fascinating stories from our past.
0: You know those stories where you think, what? If this is true and it's so interesting, why have I never heard about this before? And yes, it is true. And no, you
1: haven't heard about it before. And it's interesting because the host of Historical Blindness makes it interesting. That's Historical Blindness, the podcast that makes you wonder what else is out there, just waiting for you to learn about it. You can find it at historicalblindness.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Next email. Subject, thank you from a grateful and convalescent listener. Dear Jack. I discovered your podcast a few months ago and just wanted to say how grateful I am to be a listener of the History of Literature podcast. It has been a great comfort to me during a difficult time in my life, but first, some relevant backstory. Fourteen years ago, I got a concussion that resulted in a year-long period of convalescence. I wasn't able to read for most of that year. At some point, my grandmother picked up a book from the shelf and began to read to me. It was a beat-up selected works of W.B. Yeats that someone in my family had bought at a garage sale for 25 cents. 25 cents for a book that ended up changing my life. Listening to Yeats' verse each day, I began to memorize his poems. When I returned to the world healthy, I went back to university and decided to specialize in literature. I got an M.A. in lit as well and then began a Ph.D., which, sadly, Did not work out because I brought to the school the baggage of too many new and creative ideas. (laughs) Smiley face. I gave up on literature and worked. I hadn't read a book in two years. Then, ten months ago, I got another concussion. It was in this context that I discovered your podcast, which reignited my passion for literature that I thought I had lost forever. I now listen and re listen to your podcasts most nights before bed. It's become an incredible comfort to me during a difficult period of illness. And while it's been a tough time, it's also been a time of self searching and self reflection, of re evaluating who I really am and what truly matters to me. The passion for literature that oozes from each podcast has really helped rediscover how important literature is to me. Your episode on Milton was particularly inspiring. Another of my favorites was episode 150, Chekhov's The Lady with the Little Dog. The soft and compassionate voice with which you read the story was very comforting to listen to, along with the analysis before and after. As a side gig, you'd make a great reader of audiobooks. (laughs) Well, thank you. At any rate, I recently decided to buy you a virtual coffee to say thank you. I'm not exactly flush with cash right now. And no, it's just a small token, but I really hope it helps. And I like to imagine you now in a cafe amongst friends, sipping an iced latte on a hot summer day. The espresso mixed with milk, fueling a discussion about one of your favorite writers. From the bottom of my heart, thank you, Jack. From Peter in Toronto. Peter. Peter! Thank you so much for writing such a beautiful email. It is truly heartwarming and gratifying to know where I was in all this. I have spent many hours alone myself, alone on a journey, alone in bed, just alone, alone. I know what it's like to have company, whether that's books or a voice in your ear. I'm glad I could be there for you. Thank you for the email, and I hope you continue to enjoy the show. And most of all, I hope you heal and recover and get back to full strength. The world can use more thoughtful people and more passionate readers. And the world can use those people thinking and reading with as much power and love and empathy as they can summon forth. Speaking of power, we have a powerful writer today, a great stylist. So let's take a quick break and come back with the story of Papa Hemingway and a conversation with Mike about a book that he and I have been reading and enjoying and arguing about for 25 years the sun also rises. It's a book and an author for people who love literature for better or worse, and who love life for better or worse.
0: Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts.
1: Ernest Miller Hemingway was born in 1899 and grew up in Oak Park, Illinois, a suburb just outside Chicago.
0: His grandfathers were veterans of the Civil War. His father was a
1: doctor, his mother a musician. He did well in school, especially English, and spent his summers hunting and fishing in northern Michigan. In high school, he was not known as a great athlete. He played football, and he was on the swim team. He played water basketball and was the team manager for track. After high school, he skipped college and went instead to Kansas City where his uncle had gotten him a job at the Kansas City Star. He then became a journalist, and when World War I broke out, volunteered for the Army. They turned him down because of his poor vision. Devastated, he signed up with the Red Cross as an ambulance driver and was 18 years old when he sailed for Europe. The day he arrived, a munitions factory blew up, and he had to carry mutilated bodies and body parts to a makeshift morgue. A few weeks after arriving, he was delivering chocolates and cigarettes to Italian soldiers in the trenches when he was hit by a mortar shell, knocking him unconscious and ending his involvement in the war. For the rest of his time, he was recovering in Milan, where he fell in love with his nurse, an experience he later drew upon for his novel A Farewell to Arms. Now what? Back home to recover. But he was restless in Oak Park after having had the adventures of war, the excitement of being in Europe, and the love of a British nurse. And he was frustrated. His town was infatuated with war, but it was war of a different kind. The romantic versions of war of the 19th century, of Napoleon and Grant, cavalry and swords, and marches through the countryside in regular formations. Nothing like the trench warfare that he had witnessed. And nothing psychologically like the fear he'd felt Of worrying that he might lose his knee forever. He needed to get out. So he got a job with a newspaper and was able to spin it into a trip to Europe as a correspondent. Now he was in Paris, a 22-year-old who'd seen a lot and was hungry for more, and he had ideas of what made good writing. He had learned from Sherwood Anderson and some others, like Ring Lardner, where the world of fiction might be headed. But he applied his lessons from newspaper writing to all that too. Simple words, plain language, economical style. It was his genius to adapt and advance and put this all through the tight prism of his emotional experience, and it would end up changing American letters. We'll save the rest of his life for a future episode, because today we're focusing on A Sun Also Rises, his first novel, the book he wrote that celebrated his time in Europe in those early years. He was married, he had a young son, but he was still the hungry and eager young man who'd gone to Italy and ended up traumatized by war, but, perhaps, strengthened by the experience too. This was the Paris of Ezra Pound, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, and Ford Maddox Ford. F. Scott Fitzgerald would arrive soon. Hemingway was part of this world, Americans and other expatriates living cheaply in post-war Paris, living in a great world city, a world of books and art and culture. Modernism had swept in, and Hemingway combined all this, you might say he embodied it, the world of conversation and camaraderie, of grown-up experiences and little boy pleasures, the fishing he did and skiing and hunting and boxing, and of course, his trips to Spain and the bullfighting he loved. And the witty repartee, the hard-boiled insults, the embittered love triangles, the doomed affairs, the heavy drinking, the new development of America an increasing world power, and the creative tension between the rising strength of the new nation encountering the proud empires of England and France and Portugal and Spain, and the new ways of viewing literature. The explosion of modernity brought with it a focus on identity, even when it appears in fragments, and the way that language echoes those changes, and once they are exploded, seeks to rebuild them, paragraph by paragraph, sentence by sentence, word by word. A continent was rebuilding itself after war. A man was rebuilding himself after a devastating wound. And with rebuilding comes the possibility of reinvention. Hemingway did that, and in so doing, he developed a style and a legend and a way of life that would forever change the way America viewed its literature, and even itself. Ernest Hemingway, and the sun also rises, after this. Okay, joining me now to talk about Ernest Hemingway and The Sun Also Rises is our old friend Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature podcast. Hey, Jack. So, Mike, I think you actually introduced me to Hemingway 25 years ago or so. You, As I recall, your recommendation was something like just pressing it in my hands and saying, here's The Sun Also Rises, you've got to read this. I do remember there was one passage that I think you quoted as kind of a... Uh, you had committed it to memory, and it was your... What should I say? Your your recommendation focused on one particular passage. I don't even know if I want to quote it back to you, but basically... Is it Brett, Brett Ashley? <laughs> the uh, The description of her?
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I think that was it. And I think... <laughs> I think that was enough and it got me rolling. And I'm sure I've read all of Hemingway. I know I was deeply immersed in it for a while. Even back then, there were certain things that drove me crazy about Hemingway, but there were also things I loved. And I think, I don't think there's a writer that I have a stronger love hate relationship with than Hemingway. So, how has he held up for you over the years? Do you still feel the same way? And uh, what do you think of Hemingway today?
3: Um, I, he, I reread him mm. uh, a fair bit, um, but mostly a movable feast
2: mm. and mm-hmm. the sun
3: also rises. Yep. I mean, some of his short stories like hills, like white elephants. Um, I was just re reading to my daughter, my teenage daughter, but, um, yeah, I think those three works. Although I have to say, I actually enjoyed for whom the bell tolls and farewell to arms. I know that a lot of people have kind of, put those by the wayside
2: now. Mm. But.
1: Well, here's, that's interesting, because here's what I had written down. I was going to ask you, if someone was brand new to Hemingway, where would you yeah. start them out? And I had put down, tell me what you think of this, I had put down, uh, maybe start with a handful of his best stories, like maybe four or five of his best stories, then the sun also rises, or a farewell to arms in either order. Then A Movable Feast, because I think you do need to read some of his fiction before you can really enjoy A Movable Feast. And then I would probably put more stories in there, go a little deeper in there, or For Whom the Bell Tolls. And I don't know if The Old Man in the Sea makes it in, or if that's just tacked on for somebody who's still looking for more. Then there's some other books, too. I enjoyed uh, Death in the Afternoon, and... And a couple of the others, the other bullfighting one, the one about the summer, the long summer, whatever it is.
3: Never read that.
1: At that point, I think it's people who really want to be fully immersed in Hemingway. And some of the books I would not recommend at all.
3: My problem with the short story, I I like the idea of, uh, I like some of his short stories, but my problem with recommending those is that you you either like or hate short stories, and Mm -hmm. you don't, in that sense, you don't give it, you don't forgive it the way you forgive a novel. Because I've had friends who said like, yeah, Sun Also Rises seems like a dopey story. But then they're just like, I really, I loved it when they got to Spain. I didn't like Paris. Yeah. So there's that, you know, there's a forgiveness to a novel. That, that's why I was thinking they should start with Sun Also Rises. I mean, the Movable A movable Feast is a lot of fun. But I, I agree with you that you sort of need as fiction in, in order to like even enjoy to, to enjoy more the, the escapades, because Movable Feast, like I, I, I love this one book by Noel Riley Fitch, who wrote um, Sylvia Beach and the Lost Generation. Mm-hmm. She also wrote a book called Hemingway's Walks, which I really recommend. Yeah. It's, a, it's such an entertaining book, all the anecdotes about Pound and Gertrude Stein. So, I mean, we can get to this, but I really I go back to Hemingway because I love the whole idea of Paris in the 20s.
1: Yeah. Well, I think Noel Riley Fitch had a book that I have loved for years and years and years. It's a tiny book, but I think, I think it was written by Noel Riley Fitch and uh-huh. it's called the literary cafes of Paris. Oh. And that was a book that I had with me. And, and same thing. It was a lot of anecdotes, a lot of, this is where Joyce used to write. This is where Hemingway used to write. And, it was fantastic. I walked through Paris with that book as my guide.
3: Yeah, I mean, so you know, someone like Ford Maddox Ford, I, I think The Good Soldier is better than anything Hemingway's ever written. But hmm. the the Hemingway um, myth and the, <laughs> the 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 anecdotes. I mean, I did Ford Maddox was he just like a you know like a homebody i mean i don't i don't, I don't know anything about cuz he was in paris at the same time i believe you know yeah
1: and that the problem with a movable feast is it also it's hemingway's bullying side hemingway yeah. that's that's one of the biggest problems i have with hemingway and you see it in the sun also rises i have some theories about it but you see him kind of punching down sometimes he's at his worst when he's lording it over someone who's weaker than him. And often being weaker just means uh, they're more feminine or or they're literally a woman or they're Jewish or, you know, they're just not as cool as him, not as strong as him. And that's where he's kind of at his worst. And you see it in *A movable Feast. He kind of picks on Gertrude Stein. He kind of picks on Fitzgerald. He kind of portrays them in a way that is feels self-aggrandizing and not yeah. very charitable
3: but i like that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i find it i find it refreshing the way you know he kind of takes down fitzgerald <laughs> and, uh, and his, Fitzgerald, um,
2: does
0: Fitzgerald really need taking down He's such a sad sack <laughs> figure anyway?
3: And, and his, uh, his description of Gertrude Stein and Alice Tolkien, I, I think it's refreshing. I think that I, that's probably why I, I reread it. I find that I can reread it.
1: Well, and I'm kind of jumping all over. We're, we're kind of jumping all over the place here, but Hemingway, he then has, this very sensitive side and he's got he can be very charming he's he's like this big bully and he's all about bullfighting and uh, boxing and all these manly you know deep sea fishing and betting and all Mm -hmm. of these the manliest sports you can find and war but he then also you know he writes poetry he's got virginia wolf said called it moments of bear and nervous beauty in the sun also <laughs> rises you know he's he he does have a real he's got a sentimental streak there's a story of him weeping because his cat something was wrong with his cat and he had to kill his cat and he wrote letters about it about how tormented he was and and how he was losing a good friend and nobody would know what it was really like it was easier to kill a man in war than it was to to end the life of a friend who had been so true to him. And, you know, you he <laughs> wasn't necessarily just hard. A lot of it feels like sort of bravado, but that you know that he's got this real soft side underneath.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's reflected in the, you know, in, in The Sun Also Rises, that I, mean, I really love the passages when uh, Jake Barnes is by himself. Mm. I started to notice how much the writing changes when he's by himself than when he's in company. Yeah, that it's he's very more
1: willing to open up, and
3: he's kind of more willing to open up, but at the same time, harder on himself.
2: Mm,
1: right. Well, that's yeah. the big that's the big tension in the book, right? And that was the thing I noted when I read *The Sun Also Rises* this last time. I wrote the first note I wrote was, "This is something we have to." it will let us examine hemingway for how he's going to pull this off because he's got this wounded war veteran who's got who's impotent from his wound and yep. he's also a first person narrator so how much is he going to reveal about how he feels about this and how much is he just going to you know, have this sort of hard-boiled take on things and just allude to it and, and be all stiff-upper-lipped and everything about it and just let us sort of see how tough he was in in gritting this out and how much would he open up and tell us what it was really like to have this wound. And sometimes he does the former and sometimes he does the latter. And I I noticed that most of the time when he is opening up, it's because the character is half drunk. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know if that was Hemingway kind of, using that as a crutch like his as if to say his his hero would not be so sentimental except once he gets drinking too much then he lets himself he lets all these emotions run through him
3: a common critics interpretation of um kind of manly works is to say that you know the other characters are actually other versions of the narrator and you can sort of make the argument that Jake Barnes was someone like Robert Cohen, perhaps before the the injury
2: because
3: mm. I feel like Robert Cohen beats him up. He's stronger than him he's he's kind of wilier than Jake Barnes the way he I love the the way he and Brett have a weekend away. yeah, both of them sort of tell Jake separately and J- J- Jake reacts in this very kind of Zen way like you know what am I supposed to do about it? I
2: mean,
1: yeah. (laughs) There's parts where, like, you know, you want him
3: to get angry, you know, but he he just kind of shakes his head, like, oh, I can't perform sexually. I mean, I can't.
2: Yeah. And
1: the first chapter or so, I kept writing down, I can't believe how anti Semitic this is. And, you know, I've forgotten how anti Semitic it is. And there's certain lines that are really ugly. But then about two thirds of the way through, I was writing notes like, is this Cohen's revenge? You know, is this, does this mm-hmm. make up for it? It almost seemed like Hemingway had set us up for it. If I thought Hemingway was a little more aware, I would have thought that that was the best way to read it. That it was, you see the way that this guy has been dismissed or overlooked because of his being yeah. Jewish. And then at the end, you realize it, it's more of a surprise when it's like, oh, wait, he's, he's really the toughest guy here. And he's really... He's kind of the the biggest rival for Lady Brett Ashley. He kind of takes the others down more than you would think that he would.
3: Yeah, I mean the, the the anti-Semitism. The way I I've always read it is he he gives Robert Cohen the first seventy pages of the book, which is when you reread it, it's it's a it's a real surprise how much mm-hmm. of Robert Cohen you get, and I think part of giving you all of him is showing how being Jewish really loom large for Jake and his friend Bill. I think Bill is is even worse than Jake. Mm,
2: Yeah.
1: And it is true. I think a lot of people think the opening, spending so much time with Cohen, makes the book kind of lopsided or it's sort of a flaw in the book. But actually, this time reading it through, I got to the end and I thought, the beginning of it being so focused on Cohen really helps the structure of this.
3: Yeah, I agree.
1: It made the end matter. It made what happened with Cohen matter a lot more that you had spent so much time with Cohen at the beginning.
3: Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's very structured. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you have Cohen and Paris and then because I think the after the first time I read it, I, I kept. I ran from it thinking it's all about Paris. all about Paris. And then the second time I read it, I was like, it's really set in Spain with the fishing trip and the bullfighting. And the third time I read it, I I just felt this real balance the way you have Cohen at the beginning and then you have Pedro, the bullfighter at the end. Mm -hmm. It's so well structured. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what do you, uh, are you with people who prefer one location over the other?
3: I mean, I I think I'm a romanticist, and I, I love the descriptions of Paris, and I love the way—I I don't know if people were writing like this in his time, but few people do it today without being heavy-handed, which is he actually names places hmm. like and names streets.
1: Like streets, and we went yeah. over the bridge on such-and-such such street, and we opened the gate at such-and-such such street, and we traveled through it, and, and where yeah. the hotel was, and— yeah, it does. You do feel like you're there.
3: I mean, if you were trying to describe, like, say, I, I was, you know, on Wabash Avenue and we headed toward the Chicago River, and it, it, it could, you could just fall prey to just kind of being boring. I mean, you know, just naming places. But somehow, the way he does it, the details are are just perfect. I'm trying to find a passage where he he does Paris. I think it's also he captures the time of day, captures the pedestrians, like he he's very very good at like really setting the scene. Um, Yeah. Here, the taxi stopped. This is chapter six. He goes, the taxi stopped in front of the rotund. No matter what cafe in Montparnasse you ask a taxi driver to bring you to. From the right bank of the river, they always take you to the Raton. Ten years from now, it will probably be the Dome. It is near enough anyway. I walk past the sad tables of the Raton to the Select. There were a few people inside the bar and outside alone sat Harvey Stone. Hmm. I mean, it's just... Yeah. It, it's its fun to read. I mean, if you've been to Paris and you know those cafes, it's, it's, it's really fun to read.
1: You know what the secret is to uh, that prose? And this is... <laughs> This is something I don't know if I ever knew this, I, even though I I feel like I've read at one point I had read everything there was to read by Hemingway or about Hemingway. But I don't <laughs> remember reading this before. Maybe just got lost. So yeah. basically, you know, all of these writing programs and all of these how to write programs will tell you avoid adverbs, you know, mm-hmm. distrust words that end with l y cross those out and when you read fitzgerald for example it's really shocking how much he uses adverbs because the style everybody has so adopted that style of you don't need adverbs they just get in the way it's better to have the verb carry the action and so i'm used to reading hemingway thinking well i'm not going to see a lot of adverbs here i know he was very careful about that what i didn't realize is that he said, Well, when I was starting out, I learned from Ezra Pound not mm-hmm. to use adjectives mm-hmm. and to distrust adjectives. And in that passage that you just read, the only adjective I heard was sad that carried the whole weight. Yeah. And it's just verbs and nouns. And he also has sort of their descriptive passages where it kind of tricks you, but it's not actually using adjectives or adverbs, but it's you are seeing the place. But I've yeah. I've flagged the uh the start uh this is how a farewell to arms begins. And I'll I'll read the passage and then I'll tell you what the adjectives in the passage were. Mm-hmm. In the late summer of that year, we lived in a house in a village that looked across the river and the plain to the mountains. In the bed of the river there were pebbles and boulders, dry and white in the sun and the water was clear and swiftly moving and blue in the channels. Troops went by the house and down the road, and the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees. The trunks of the trees, too, were dusty, and the leaves fell early that year, and we saw the troops marching along the road, and the dust rising, and leaves, stirred by the breeze, falling, and the soldiers marching, and afterwards the road bare and white, except for the leaves. So that's the passage. So you really get a sense of this place. And it's a beautiful, you know, it carries a kind of beauty to it. But the adjectives are so few and they're so plain. The boulders are dry and white. The water is clear and blue. The trunks are dusty. The road is bare and white. And that's it. The only adverb is swiftly. But there's ways that he gets the description through. Like he says the dust they raised powdered the leaves of the trees which is kind of an adjective you know it's a description of the leaves but it's done through this sort of movement or or action you know that it's powdering the leaves of the trees rather than just the leaves of the trees were powdery or uh speckled with white or you know something like that but when you are looking for that and you i know he He's famous for short sentences, although the sentences really aren't that short. But he's famous for having these kind of brick by brick, concrete, one description after the other, carefully chosen words, carefully chosen for their effect and also for their sound and for their placement in the sentences. And he achieves a kind of poetry through it. Sometimes it can feel mannered or or forced, especially in his later writing. But when he's at his best, it's so easy to read. It's so vivid and it feels so substantial. I think because you're getting this, it's like this all protein diet. You're just getting nouns and verbs.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a magic trick because, Mm -hmm. you know, the danger is you just feel like you've read page upon page and you feel like you're, you're not getting any kind of flavor. You know, you're not getting anything to, like, chew on. Right. I, I think he writes drunks so well, or people starting to get drunk. There's this dialogue in Sun and Soul Rises where I, there's this kind of bland dialogue, and then the narrator goes, I was a little drunk, not drunk in any positive sense, but just enough to be careless. <laughs> right. And that That's just, that's perfect.
1: Yeah when he's writing yeah. about bullfighting he can be like that too where it's yeah. he's not he's not developing this this really unusual vocabulary or this real elaborate way of describing things he's not like a a philosopher who has to invent his own language to talk about something but he's talking about something uh in a way that you can actually participate in the description with hemingway you understand what he means even if you're you don't know that much about bullfighting.
3: I, I I used to have a writing teacher who had this great exercise. It's, uh, and can't do it with his novels. I mean, you could try, but basically he said, you know, you take any short story, and you try to delete three sentences in each short story. And it's actually very easy, but not with a Hemingway short story.
2: Mm. Yeah.
3: So it was, it was, it's kind of a fun exercise to try.
1: For all the love, hate relationship with Hemingway the thing that always kind of redeems him is how much he cared about literature. And sometimes you see it slipping a little bit where he seems like he's more trying to promote himself than actually get the story across. And I know that was a criticism of like his magazine article writing and stuff, that he he really only had one character, and that was the author. And sometimes you sense that from the stories and, and parts of the novels as well, that he's really just trying to promote the myth of Hemingway. But, setting that aside, the redeeming quality in his short stories and in the best of his novels is, he Mm -hmm. really cares about the words, and he cares about the story, and he cares about literature, and he had this, here's the kind of thing that makes me love Hemingway. Here's a, a quote, he told a friend this, quote, the rejection slip is very hard to take on an empty stomach. There were times when I'd sit at that old wooden table and read one of those cold slips that had been attached to a story I had loved and worked on very hard and believed in, and I couldn't help crying, end quote. (laughs) And you just think, you know, that's, I've known a lot of bullies and a lot of macho guys, and you know, none of them had that side to them, that redeeming quality of having a kind of love for literature and art that Hemingway had.
3: There's all that stuff around Hemingway that makes you want to love him. Hmm. I think that that's why he's an enduring figure. I, I think like people who ha- haven't read anything by Hemingway and may may never will, you know, associate him with Paris.
1: Yeah, I mean, where do you think people associate? Well, they probably associate him with Paris, right? The Lost Generation in the twenties. Yeah, I guess it's Paris, it's Cuba, it's Africa. It's Michigan, it's Chicago and Kansas City. He worked in Toronto for a while, but I don't think most people associate him with Toronto. I don't even know actually if he was based in Toronto, if it was just, he was being paid by the Toronto Star, I guess when he was, that was when he was in Europe. A little bit in Italy. I mean, he wrote uh, the book that was set near Venice and also he was in, that was where he drove the ambulance in World War I. But yeah, I never really think of him in New York. Yeah. Uh, like as I do with Fitzgerald, sometimes I think of him in Idaho. I guess uh, where he had his, I think he had his ranch there. That's about it.
3: Wherever he went, he's very immersive. You know that, right? You don't feel like he's there like a typical American, when in fact he was quite a typical American he from the Midwest and yeah, trying to earn a living. And you you get the sense that he didn't put up with a lot of crap. Yeah. You know, a lot of pretense because, you know, for him to be associated with Paris and literature and, you know, an an art scene, you you sort of feel like he would have, you know, been correcting us and saying like, no, no, you don't understand what we were doing. We were just making a living. We were doing what we loved, like stop, like stop dressing it up into like, you know, (laughs) into some kind of like elitist clique. Yeah. You know? Maybe so like, that's why he's popular.
1: He does not seem pretentious.
3: That's definitely true. I mean, you know, when you read English authors um like Evelyn Waugh, and I love Evelyn Waugh, but after a while you just think, boy, these people have so much money and they are so whiny. <laughs> they are so whiny. Yeah. And you know, you're you want to just grab them and be like what is your problem? <laughs> yeah,
1: and that's that's probably why uh, a sun also rises is is so good, and why a movable feast is so good, where he's thinking back to those days. It's when Hemingway was hungry, and when he yeah. was not a literary superstar world famous, you know, he was basically this yeah. this this young guy trying to figure out who he was, trying to make it as a writer. He had uh, had a lot of trouble with his parents. I think they actually, I don't know if they burned. I think his father might've burned the copies that were sent to him of A Sun Also Rises, that it was, mm. he viewed it as filth that uh, he couldn't have in his house. And uh, he had a lot of things that he was trying to work through to figure out who he was. And along with it, I think were a lot of, I guess I'd say growing pains or just he wasn't, immediately successful he did have those years where he was trying to get by
3: yeah i mean it's uh you know the descriptions of walking up uh his walk up uh putting coal because the room was cold yeah sipping the last of the whiskey always offering whiskey to guests i mean there's there's all this stuff where you just feel like you know he's scraping by a little bit and you could scrape by back then and still live in paris so It, it you know it's it's double-edged a little bit when you you think like oh i mean who today like in what city could you scrape by and try to write a novel but yeah i mean the scenes in rereading the book and reading the scenes in spain i was just bowled over there when he's in spain he goes um It is always cool in the downstairs dining room, and we had a very good lunch. The first meal in Spain was always a shock, with the hors d'oeuvres, an egg course, two meat courses, vegetables, salad, and dessert and fruit. You have to drink plenty of wine to get it all down. Robert Cohen tried to say he did not want any of the second meat course, but we did not interpret for him, and so the waitress brought him something else as a replacement, a plate of cold meats, I think. <laughs> I mean, you can take, you can taste the, f- you can taste the food. You you want to be there. I mean, that the idea that you have to drink a lot of wine to get down the food. Yeah, it's like that. I mean, that sounds like a f- feast. It's a luxury. I think yeah.
1: that's that's one of the things that's so great. I mean, he does. He'll talk about writing, and he'll talk about how he just sat in a cafe and he would think, write the truest sentence you know. And he would, you know, agonize over that, or he would talk about, you know, the famous, uh, I don't know, he rewrote the ending of A Farewell to Arms 17 times or something. And (laughs) you know that he's living his life thinking and working very hard at his writing. But when you read the books, you don't feel like you're reading about a guy who's kind of taking it easy and spending all of his day painting or writing poetry or something, you think it's a guy who is always planning the next fishing trip or yeah. he's about to go out hunting or he's he's really got to meet somebody at this bar or he's got to encounter the bullfighter who he knew last time he passed through the city or, or he's boxing, you know, and he's always... He feels like a guy who's got a lot of activities that have nothing to do with writing
3: yeah i mean when you it begs the question when did he have the time to write (laughs) yeah (laughs) and he's also
1: he's got to turn in stories i guess that's the other thing he's a newspaper writer so you kind of feel like he's working that way too so it is kind of appealing there is something very appealing and i sort of i went through europe at an age, you know, I think Hemingway, when he was in Paris, was during Prohibition in the States. So I feel like a lot of the drinking was him basically mm-hmm. sending this almost like a postcard home, you know, saying, like, it's amazing here. You can drink all the t- You could drink so easily. And like he gets a little carried away describing the how much the wine costs and how they which ones they drank chilled and how he buys a flask to put the the (laughs) alcohol in and you know it's so much of it is centered around what people are going to drink but that's kind of how it was like when i was 20 you know the drinking age in america was 21 and i was 20 and i was thinking this is amazing nobody's (laughs) running around with fake ids and nobody's trying to talk someone into buying beer for them. You could just walk into a store. And that's sort of just one aspect of the way it makes people feel when they're in Europe. I think if you're young and you're traveling and you think, I'm on a train and pretty soon I'll be in another country and then I'm going to go somewhere totally different. And Hemingway really captures that feeling. I think it's, I think there have been generations of Americans who have Mm-hmm. read that the sun also rises as they're traveling through Europe and feeling a lot like he did, that he's this American who kind of fits in, but everything is still kind of new. And every time you're accepted by people in the local country, you feel like it's mm-hmm. this great feeling. You feel like you're a world citizen.
3: I I, I really agree with that. I, I have this theory that the, there's a way that literature can allow you to not hallucinate, but just fantasize right. about your own life, and I think Hemingway's fiction works that way. Because you take someone like Seabold, you're you're absolutely thinking nothing else when you're reading Seabold, hmm. W.G. Seabold. I I think the way his mind works and the sentences work, they just close off. Like you have to pay complete attention; your mind can't wander. But with Hemingway, I find that you can wa- your mind wanders, and it's so pleasant. Mm. Um Yeah, because the sentences, while they hold together, absolutely hold together. They they sort of like do different things. They kind of veer off. I mean, right. and, and you know, I think that's something that really appeals to teenagers. Yeah, you know, and people in their twenties. That maybe if you, for instance, you were asking me when what book you would start with. You know, another question is like, is it too late to read Hemingway? I mean if you're yeah. 30 if you're 39 and someone says, "Oh, you got to read this." I mean, <laughs> maybe you're too you're too old.
1: It's a little like like maybe you read The Catcher in the Rye first and then, you know, within yeah. 5 years you read Hemingway and then and then you move on. I mean, it's sort of there was a great I read this uh obituary after Hemingway died and it was I think it was in the New York Times and they had collected all of these statements by writers who had talked about how influential he was and how important he had been to American letters and and how they themselves had based their writing style on him or, or certain books had really inspired them. And there was this one by uh, Van Wyke Brooks, who was an author and literary historian. And he said, Hemingway was in his way a typical American and there was something permanently adolescent about him that, that stood for certain immaturity in the American mind. Which I think is kind of right. I think there's there's part of it is this feeling of of game. You know, like a lot of his activities feel like a kid trying to play an impressive game. That it's oh here's here's the danger. It's like a kid who's going for a joyride in a car or who is you know, impressing somebody by skydiving or something. It's got that kind of, you never feel like he's all that mature when he's bragging. Let me get to something that has really bothered me about Hemingway ever since I first started reading him. Hmm, that seems like a good place for a break. Let's take a quick break and come back with more of our conversation on Ernest Hemingway and The Sun Also Rises. Uh, the thing that's always driven me crazy about Hemingway is that he has this thing about an aficionado Uh and a specialty. He frequently uses this where he, the narrator or the Hemingway stand-in goes into some town and there is some kind of specialist there, like a master bullfighter and they Uh recognize in Hemingway somebody who truly understands what they're trying to do. And then you feel like they're in this specialized club of people who have very particular knowledge and not everybody, some people will never understand. And Hemingway is sort of embarrassed by his friends of how, how far away they are from where he and the, the master bullfighter are in their understanding of things. And it can be kind of seductive as a reader. You think you want to be in that club And then you realize that really it's just the club of Hemingway, that it's he's just trying to sort of set himself apart is how it ends up feeling to me. And I've expanded this. This is where I've sort of turned this into a theory. I've expanded this into his writing style, where Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel shut out of it, that he'll say things like, it was a good fight, or we -hmm. stayed in a small good room. And I can't tell... If he's trying to boil the experience down in a way, you know, he has a lot of quotes about how you try to feel the emotion and then you try to write it in a way that other people will feel the emotion too. And I I kind of feel that way sometimes with some of his simple phrases when he says things like the bed was warm and good and I wanted to sleep all night or, you know, something like that. And I think, oh, I know exactly how that feels when the bed feels warm and good. But then other times when he says something was a good fight it feels like he's making a judgment that he's saying I decided it was good and I get to decide because I'm in this special club of people who have superior taste and judgment and when I go into a town people recognize me as one of one of the best and one of the people who have this superior taste and judgment and you will you will never live up to my standard and so just accept it when I say something is good that means it was good
3: do you ever read Hemingway like that um I mean I guess part of me thinks there's so many adults that are really adolescent yeah <laughs> generally <laughs> that so adults don't, American don't adults don't have bad.
1: set a low bar so yeah if he's I mean, even a notch above it that's uh he's probably yeah. uh, better than most
3: I mean, I, I I I always kind of recoil when someone describes some some guy as a good guy because I feel like that means they don't really know him, but they're hoping he's not like a serial killer.
2: Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so,
3: um, but you know that that goes to just having lower standards and just wanting people to leave you alone. That's almost like this the Hemingway standard is that you know, keep me company when we go on this fishing trip. But for God's sakes, like get a hold of yourself. Don't don't get sick (laughs) on yourself. I mean, that's the standard. Like don't make me have to care for you. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, there is a ton of that in Hemingway. And it's usually there's one other guy and Hemingway and that guy, like maybe there's a guide or, you know, the 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 person who is actually good at what they do. And Hemingway brings a crowd to that guy and Hemingway and the guy are the two who really know how it works and with everybody else he's basically saying you got to get a hold of yourself (laughs) (laughs) you're gonna embarrass yourself and me because of your weakness
3: yeah that reminds me of when I one of my first jobs out of uh, college I was uh, I was an intern at a place and they paid a good wage and some of the interns were asking how do you get a permanent job here after the trial period and one of the 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 higher-ups said "Um, whatever you do at any of the events the office events don't vomit and we were like (laughs) okay that's pretty low standard and then somebody vomited. And then the guy, we w- went back to him and we were like, hey, w- w- you said you-, you shouldn't vomit. I mean, but this guy got a, f- a full, you know, offer. And and he said, yeah, no, I'll, I'll just change that to don't vomit on someone else's shoes. <laughs> <laughs> so that seemed to be the standard. <laughs> That's the
1: standard. That's the American adolescent. That's yeah. the mind. That was probably, you know, there were probably a lot of hemingway readers i can remember when i was in europe this guy came and he saw me and this maybe i'll start to wrap this up as i tell this story but uh-huh. one of the things i really liked so let me back up even more i'm gonna run through like three of my notes here okay so virginia wolf had this thing where she said even though she was praising Hemingway for these moments of bare and nervous beauty. And she said it's a an abrupt and outspoken book. And she she finds a lot to like about Hemingway and his carefully chosen phrases and the way he places them all together and everything. But then she says his characters compared with Chekhov are as flat as cardboard. <laughs> <laughs> and she said they're never surprising. They're basically that she, she didn't find much new or innovative in his characters. And I think, you know, she was going so deep in her stream of consciousness type stuff that mm-hmm. I think that was probably why that he was staying to the surface where it was a lot more predictable. But I do think, I really remember, uh, this really resonated with me, and I remember it resonating with me when I was in college, of this feeling where Jake is he's not very posh and th- this i think could only occur in early hemingway mm-hmm. but jake is not very posh but it's like the people who are posh want him around because the rest of their posh friends are totally insufferable and jake actually is someone who is just kind of he's kind of fun to be around and he's He's not as snobby as the others or, you know, for whatever reason. And it reminded me so much of this feeling, even though I guess it's a cardboard character, but it reminded me so much of this feeling I had when I was in Europe that there were all of these people there who would invite me to things. And I, I wasn't part of their group, but I realized they really didn't like the people in their group. So even if they all kind of looked down on me because I wasn't in this, you know, they a lot of them were from Brown and, and had a lot of money and they had all of these advantages and they knew they were in each other's social set and they would probably end up getting married to each other or whatever. But they just really couldn't stand to spend time with each other. So <laughs> they would invite me and a couple other guys just to come and kind of mingle just so that they could get through an evening without it being full of, you know, just these guys bragging. And one of these guys came in. And mm-hmm. I don't know if I had said something that made people laugh. Or for some reason, he got upset with me. And he said,
0: you know what your problem is?
1: <laughs> and I was like, "I no, I don't. And he said,
0: you're a Fitzgerald guy.
1: And I'm a Hemingway guy. <laughs> and I just thought and that i think is kind of the the american adolescent mind in a nutshell that somebody is so devoted to their the idea of themselves as this uh swaggering macho i'm i'm going to literally grab a bull by the horns and throw him as hemingway once did when he was standing watching a bullfight for some reason he was inside the ring watching a bullfight and the bull came flying over toward him, and he just grabbed it by the horns and threw it. (laughs) Um, But so, you know, people who have this idea of themselves, they want to live in this world where they're striding through Europe like Hemingway. It's kind of an ugly American side, but with Hemingway, I guess we're excusing it.
3: I I think he's uh, he's not exactly a bro, and I think he he distinguishes (laughs) himself from that crowd. I think you know like i was saying before i think bill and robert cohen e- even robert cohen the way he brags and mm-hmm. you know jake is definitely the most refined of the the the, the coarse physical men and you know there there's something um reserved about jake the way he absents himself early in the night to just be by himself or he wants to you know, be alone. And he's like, if you don't want to fish with me, that's fine. I'm going fishing. I think there's something very, uh, American about that kind of independence where even, you know, I think, you know, Americans can be less of a herd than people, you know, make, make us out to be
2: Mm-hmm.
1: at this time. In the twenties, it was before America had really become a superpower, and there's something, yeah, there's something earnest and and exciting about Hemingway at that and then being an American at that time, where it really is, uh, he's new and he's fresh, and there's also something in the Sun Also Rises that gives it this ballast, which is his narrator is impotent, so every kind of macho sentiment and every tendency that Hemingway has to make it about manly things is completely yeah. uh, balanced out by the fact that his narrator and kind of the hero physically is not manly. And so in this disturbing to him way, yeah it kind of gives all of the the puffery a sort of ballast that keeps it rooted to the earth and I think, uh, makes it one of Hemingway's most charming and, uh, readable books.
3: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think it really is one of the first books that come to mind as a recommendation when someone's traveling.
1: Everyone should pack it in their bag. Well, maybe not everyone give it a try, give some stories a try. Maybe we should do a a Hemingway story as one of our deep dive stories.
3: Yeah, we could do Indian camp. <laughs> or or hills like white elephants. Hills, hills like, like White elephants.
1: elephants would be good. The Killers, yeah. uh a clean, well lighted place. There's plenty. We'll have to uh yeah we'll, we'll have to maybe we'll have to draw out of a hat or something.
3: I was gonna surprise you and quickly reread the old man and the sea and report it, report back to you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. That sounds good. And you also have you're gonna be doing a solo episode, one I'm going to abstain from. Which is I don't know if we should reveal uh, <laughs> who the author is. Maybe we should let people guess. But uh, that's something we could look forward to. I thought we could also do a special Halloween episode where we do a short story, maybe a Telltale Heart or uh, another Edgar Allan Poe
3: story. Or yeah, we could do um, the most dangerous game. Oh, <laughs> that was I was always haunted by that. <laughs>
1: Kid. <laughs> I don't think that would affect kids the same anymore because of all of the uh, video games. They're basically oh, that's basically Fortnite. Games, yeah. yeah, they're they're basically doing it all now. So,
3: yeah.
1: Okay. Well, let's leave things there, Mike. As always, thanks for joining me on the history of literature. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> that's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Mike for joining me and for pressing that green copy of The Sun Also Rises into my hands all those years ago. It's a copy I still have, along with a few others. And my thanks to our emailers, Peter and Irving. Good luck to you both. If you'd like to send me an email, I'd love to hear from you. Find me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E. Wilson author at gmail.com And if you'd like to donate money to the show, I'd like to spend it. I'm just kidding. I'd like to use it to defray expenses. I have to buy a few more books, pay for the server space, pay for the website, and now and then buy myself a cup of coffee or a shot of whiskey to keep me going. You can help fund the program at patreon.com slash literature or historyofliterature.com slash shop. And now... We're going to have to leave you. I don't know why I'm sentimental about this. We do this every week, don't we? And I'll be back again soon. Yet for some reason, I'm feeling a little lost and lonely this time around. I don't know what I'm going to do without you for the next six days. Except keep reading and keep cobbling together these shows. And keep hoping that you are out there listening and that you're doing well. And that together we will all make it through, even the lowest of moments, even the craziest of times.
0: You know, The Sun Also Rises has
1: a famous epigraph from Gertrude Stein claiming that Hemingway belonged to a lost generation. And Hemingway wrote the book and said to his famous editor, Max Perkins The title gives the clue The Sun Also Rises, The Earth Abideth Forever. And Hemingway said, I didn't think of the people in it as lost, battered, yes, but not lost. And that's how I feel too. We are battered right now, all of us, but all is not lost. We are not lost. We are many things, but we are not yet lost. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.